With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Uh, so it is July 20th. We are uh, midway through the summer and we can definitely have felt the, the summer lull from uh, essentially all the traveling and, and just the fact that like this is really, I would say, the first year where there's just COVID is gone. Like there is travel restrictions are gone. Everyone's moving around. And so it really feels good to kind of see the world getting back in place. Uh, Bitcoin has been kind of bouncing around at that 30,000 foot uh, level. Um, but there's a ton of, of amazing articles and a lot of movement going on, a lot of regulation we're going to talk today. And I'm excited to kind of get in that, into that with our guests. Um, you know, but right now the global cryptocurrency landscape is just evolving so quickly. Uh, regulatory shifts, technology advancements, uh, and very strategic industry maneuvers. Uh, the U.S. Senate's move to regulate DeFi like traditional banks and the Federal Reserve's launch of FedNow uh, are really highlighting the sector's growth and influence in response uh, for traditional finance. With that, let me go ahead and, and start off with introducing our guests, uh, as well as our co-hosts as, as well. Um, so let me start off with uh, Zemfira, and uh, we'll go to Jessica and then Brad. Yes. <clears throat> Thanks, Jay. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Zemfira Kisaeva. I'm currently president of YWells, working alongside Jay on anything Web3 focused. Um, my background is management consulting and banking. I spent quite a few years at Scotiabank, which is the third largest bank in Canada. Uh, running their technology and enterprise strategy. So anything regulations related, banking related is very close to the heart. So very happy to contribute to today's conversation. Awesome. Jessica? Thanks, Jay. And nice to see both you and Zen. Uh, my background is technical. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur, multiple successful exits. Most recently, I founded a software as a service company, which we took public on NASDAQ. And now a few years later, have announced our sale to a strategic. Uh, I also serve on the board of Y Whales. I've been involved in investing and venture now for over a decade with board service in multiple countries, both public and private. And I'm also FINRA, uh, US FINRA Securities Licensed. Fabulous. Really excited. Thank you so much, Jessica. Uh, and our guest of honor, Brad from uh, Equify. Thank you, Jay. Uh, Brad Yassar, CEO of Equify. Um, Equify is a neobank that is uh, crypto and DeFi friendly. I've been an entrepreneur all my life. Um, on my 15th company, had two exits uh, and um, been actively investing in the technology space for two decades. Yeah, and and so Brad, we're going to lean on you heavily because there's there's nothing about the space that you don't know of, haven't lived through, and and as you uh, we talked about before this, you know, crypto winter is just another cycle that you have to live with because it it goes up and down, and it's very uh, you know it, it's not it's not uh, predictable, but it definitely is repeatable. 
Fabulous. So let's just start off. Uh, let's let's jump into Jessica a little bit of your wheelhouse. Uh, the U.S. Senate bill wants to regulate DeFi like banks. Um, I think that's a very interesting concept. Uh, right now, the U.S. Senate is preparing a bill called the Crypto Asset National Security Enhancement Act of 2023. Rolls right off the tongue. Uh, it aims to impose a stringent anti-money laundering requirement on DeFi protocols, uh, including identity identity verification, uh, reporting suspicious activity, and blocking sanctioned individuals uh, from using these protocols. Now, this is OFAC. This is every bank uh, in the world has to has to adhere to some of these. Um, what's your thoughts? And, you know, is this a, a good or bad for the industry? Well, I think it's important to, to note that uh, generally bills that are introduced into either side of our Congress here in the U.S., we're unlikely to see it pass in its original form. So I think we should think of this more as a conversation opener and and a a stance on hey here are some ways we might think about doing it and in particular I just want to comment on Senator Gillibrand who has uh, been a little bit quietly I would say um, but becoming more and more of a advocate and I see this really as as her putting her stake in the sand and saying. Hey, these technologies, these currencies, this is here to stay. And let's figure out how we can make this available to the American public. So I see it as overall very positive. I've spent time with Senator Gillibrand and uh, in general, she is very forward thinking and under, and, and really works to understand new technologies and how to work with those in the U.S. framework? Amazing, Brad. You know this is this is what you do. Um, you know you you run an exchange, you run a bank. You you absolutely you know have been part of you know launching so many of these these online protocols. And I always want to say there there's no anonymous in in blockchain. There's no kind of guarantee that you can you know have your an anonymity uh, per se. So you know do you do you feel like this is a, a, a positive for consumers to have regulation that that gives us some rules to play by? Um, I think any action that's not a lawsuit filed by SEC is positive in the United States because so far all we've seen is misguided legal actions taken and no real conversation around a framework, a need for a framework. And we know there's a need for a framework. So I think it can be very positive. But I'm, I'm with Jessica. It's just a conversation starter. So it, in its current form, I think it's a little um, misunderstanding what DeFi is. If we break down DeFi, it's decentralized finance. So how are you going to enforce OFAC and KYC AML in a decentralized, truly decentralized setting? Like, for example, Uniswap is a well-known um, DeFi exchange. Uh, it's, it's decentralized. They can always try to regulate uh, Uniswap Labs. That is a company with people in it, and, and they handle the front end of the protocol. But anyone can plug into Uniswap's platform, not the front end, not Uniswap.com or, or their website, but Uniswap protocol and use it without any KYC AML because it's decentralized. So I think... Instead of trying to take legislature and, and regulation from 50s and 60s and apply it to a technology that's just been 
released in the past decade. Uh, I think a better approach would be to create a study environment to understand the technology and then talk about how we're going to regulate it. Because otherwise, we're going to have the same issues with the Howey test and same issues with the regulation from 1930s, 40s about securities. That is completely outdated now. I mean, the, the, the regulations of that time applied to paper stocks, paper money, and uh, physical transactions. Today, nothing is, even fiat currency is all digitized. Everything is handled digitally. And then you add the complexion that's decentralized, where you don't have a central authority that can say, Jay, if you don't give your ID, uh, you can't transact with this platform. Um, then you make it very difficult to regulate in the old way or, or comply with the old rules. So whereas we can imagine a, a protocol layer, a decentralized protocol layer that gathers identity information, for example, for all transactions and keeps it to itself until there's a valid inquiry into it by a body, government body globally, that needs that information because there was illegal activity, money laundering, whatever the nefarious reason may be, and then they get access to it. And that, that's something we can build. So there's a technology answer to how they're trying to um, regulate. And then there's the current approach where it's like, we're going to take the 50s, 60s, OFAC and you know AML requirements and then try to apply it to a blockchain scenario where things move at split second. And how do you do that? How do you block people from not using a decentralized exchange? It's just not practical. Zem, and you can't speak for any of your your past uh, gigs, but you know you very much understand you know big 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 banks. Uh, you know one of your your former employers was about one point three trillion dollars uh, of assets just amongst themselves. You know what's what's the the big banks feeling on on DeFi besides threatened? Well, I think I think big banks just try to ignore it in the first place. I think that's kind of um, a given. But I, I wanted to add something to the regulatory aspects of. KYC, AML, and all those uh, important regulations. So ultimately, I think it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable that pretty much any um, any platform or any solution out there will have to comply it or it will become just illegal. And it's just a matter of time when it becomes a reality. And yes, the platform will still exist. It's just like you know the dark market still exists and it still happens, but that is ultimately... Um, not supported by, if it's not supported by the government, it's very likely that they eventually just going to disappear. So that's um, just being part of the large bank. Um, at some point, we, we kind of had this internal joke saying that if people think that banks are run by the management, they're wrong. Banks are run by the regulators. And it's just the question of the size when it becomes big enough so that you just cannot avoid that. Interesting. No, and and uh, good perception. So let's uh, let's jump over into kind of what what our government, you know, and again, a little little U.S. focused for this morning or starting off. Um, so the Federal Reserve is decided to launch Fed Now. Um, that is going to allow for instance, you know, kind of payments. So right now, if you if you uh, Try to cast a check. ACH is is technically seven days. Um, you know, really does clear in about you know what. 
48, uh, $48 hours, but it's still relatively slow, especially compared to blockchain. And it is expensive. There are some costs to use. Um, Jessica, I'm going to kind of bounce right back over to you. I mean, it's, this is not blockchain technology. This is just digitized, um, you know, CDBC, um, money. So it's still utilizing the SWIFT system. Um, but I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts around, you know, is, 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 is this even a positive move or is this us, you know, taking a sidestep and, and locking ourselves into legacy technology? Well, that's a good question, Are we? I, I think it's very much a move to try to protect the existing SWIFT system. So if we think about and we, we look at how payments work worldwide, the U.S. SWIFT system has been woefully behind most of the world in terms of its ease of use and how quickly transactions complete during it and and what you have to do to actually execute a transaction on it. And I see this very much as a, oh, we better hurry up and actually launch this thing that we have been delaying because it wasn't to the the benefit of the the banks and you know the government's been influenced by their large lobbying association. I see this very much as a move to, hey, there are a lot of new protocols that are evolving, that are making settling nearly immediately and with much, much lower fees and and see this very much as a move to try to entrench and protect the SWIFT system. Because as we all know, if it's not broken and it's basically working and there are no pain points, people will stay on legacy systems for far, far, far longer. And sadly, I think that there's uh, we're, we're going to see that very much be the case. I mean, there's still a majority of banks running on AS 400s from the 1980s. Um, and, you know, like the databases that are so far outdated that you, they've got like one or two people that they employ simply to just make sure that they stay on. Cause if it ever powered down, they don't know how to turn them back on or reboot them. Um, so there's a, a lot of really interesting things, you know, there. Uh, Zemfira, what, what's your thoughts? So actually, uh, real-time payments been, we've been talking about real-time payments for decades. And I think um, part of the reason why, so we, actually I'm from Canada, so we have this real-time payments initiative in Canada. And one of the biggest questions for us was, why do we need it? And where is the rest of the world is? And I mean, we always looked at the U.S. saying, well, U.S. is also behind, so we should be fine, which ultimately not is the right answer because... The rationale for the real-time payments was always to be competitive globally. So if you have real-time real-time payments in Europe and you don't have in the U.S., it's a big, um, um, the U.S. ultimately is behind. So this is what behind this. It's really more about moving the payment innovation forward versus anything related to DeFi per se. Having said that, I see DeFi um, and real-time payments as two almost independent um, technologies that also use the use case for both is relatively different as well. Brad, you know, you run a bank, you deal with these, um, you know, is this of any interest to you? Does it solve any of the problems that you deal with, you know, day-to-day banking clients, or is it just a band-aid while they wait for true blockchain technology? I, I think defining it as protecting SWIFT is, I, I mean, I couldn't have said it better because if, if you look at, um, quick payments, we have chips in US where it, it allows banks to settle among themselves within minutes. 
So if you do a chips transaction between, you know, two large institutions, because it's only limited to large institutions right now, it's almost instantaneous. It's sub 10 minutes. Um, so we have something like that right now. And UK has CHAPS, Europe has SEPA, and, and uh, everyone is doing their own little way of sidestepping SWIFT because SWIFT settles manually every night. And ACH, like you said, is even longer times uh, required. I, I don't even know why, because the technology can support minute settlements, but it's it's the uh, checks and balances and the middleman that, that are needed. So I, I think Fed now probably is in place to... Um, extend the lifespan of SWIFT because everyone globally is seeing with uh, crypto settlements, whether they use it or they're trying to ban it, they see how fast it can be done. So you have the technology component. Is this doable? Do we have the technology to settle any size transaction instantly? The answer is yes. You have the compliance component, which is really important. And, and just like you said, because we're a bank, we're fully compliant and, and we try to innovate compliance, not sidestep it. Like, how can we do it better? How can we have the same level of bank grade compliance, both on the digital transactions and fiat transactions, but not get stuck in the regulations from 50, 60 years ago? Um, so if you, if you look at that from a compliance perspective, it's still doable. So the technology is there. A way to stay compliant is there. And we still have SWIFT and ACH. Why? I, I can't answer that. But I think Fed now can be a step in the right direction. My biggest concern when people compare Fed now to CBDCs and things like that is, of course, the um, added elements that they're trying to put into it. Uh, because, uh, you know, you don't need to create the central bank digital currency that can be recalled or anything like that to uh, continue the tradition of fiat money. I mean, fiat money was never designed to exert control other than economic, but like um, uh, regulatory control over over the population. So now they're, they're looking at like China's CDBC. Technologically, it's very exciting. You have it on your phone, you can spend it, but then they can turn it off so you can't buy cigarettes. They can turn it off so you can't buy alcohol. That no longer is a value transfer in the way we've uh, become accustomed to it. That's very restrictive. So if we don't go in that direction with Fed now, and it's still a value transfer mechanism, I think it can speed things up and breathe new life into SWIFT, which should go away, in my opinion, because it's too burdensome, too manual, and too slow. Um, are there better options? Yes, but I don't think we have an appetite to explore those. Yeah, and, and one of the things I, about CDBCs, and we, you know, it's, this is not a new concept. This has you know been around for you know what fifteen plus years. They've been talking about these. I think from institution to institution, you know, like moving you know billions, hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars. That's great. That that's really it solves a big problem of which hey, you, the Federal Reserve understands where this money is, and it's moving big you know volumes of 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 money around in between these banks, and then the bank can you know redistribute into and use uh, you know hopefully a 
USDC type 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 token that doesn't have those those government restrictions. Um, but you know, it, it's scary to to think that you know China, who again, you just hey, we we don't want you to do this activity anymore. Um, you know, you're done. And we've seen them exert those kind of pressures on the credit card companies. You know, hey, we don't think that uh, you know gun ranges should be should exist anymore. And then they just go to Visa and MasterCard and say, you know, stop doing business with them or else. And then, you know, you, you kind of see the, uh, the precursor of where this is going. Um, jumping over to, uh, the financial stability board, which I think is, is, uh, you know, a, a real, very real and very important thing, uh, meaning that they want to have stability amongst our financials, uh, a little bit less chaos. So the FSB, uh, it's an international body that monitors the global financial system, um, and has made some rules for cryptocurrencies, or I should say suggestions. Uh, they want to ensure that crypto related activities are regulated properly to reduce risks and protect investors. Very positive thing there as well. Uh, the FSB's framework includes uh, recommendations on governments, governance, disclosure, risk management, and cooperation between regulators. Uh, the FSB's final recommendation is based on the principle of same activity, same risk, same regulation. Um, and it's really aimed that global stablecoins uh, and crypto-related assets are regulated in proportion to the potential risks. Um, let's just jump right back over to you, Brad. Very positive. I, 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 I cannot commend FSB more uh, if I tried. I mean, uh, looking at imaginary borders we drew on a map and saying, this is my country and that's yours, so they need to be regulated differently, uh, went out the door probably a couple decades ago when global tra trade and finance took over and, and um, created this economy now where if there's a tiny little problem somewhere in the world, it affects the whole world. I mean, we can we can look at Ukraine and how it's affecting food supplies globally. So we're no longer disconnected. I think this approach for blockchain and, and, and crypto is a very sound approach just because it recognizes that the economies are intertwined and the activities that happen in one country carry over to the next, carry over to the next. I mean, the, the worst thing, just uh, focusing on U.S. again, that I've been telling can happen is U.S. gets left behind because everyone else says, hey, we're going to embrace this. We're going to regulate it in a certain way. And we're still like Kuwait talking about banning stuff and, and uh, trying to restrict and sue companies for uh, trying to comply with uh, a regulatory framework that's not well defined. So I think this is a really good step. I think more, more of the global community should have this approach and say, okay, we're trading with each other or these assets travel through our borders. We need to have a solid framework regulatory framework, legal framework that supports innovation and apply it across board so companies are not moving from one country to the other to the other as this regulatory winds change. And Jessica, we're we're seeing that the uh, the G twenty um, is 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 happy about this. They're they're excited, and, and generally, you know, you got to be concerned when a bunch of nations agree on something. But um, <laughs> is, what, what's your feelings on that? I I think there's been a lot of Hey, we need some leadership here and we need some, some agreement. And I, I think from sometimes we can, and I'll speak for myself, just being in the US, it can feel uh, a little insular here. And with all of this fight happening with the 
you know, SEC and, <laughs> and, and what's Congress going to do and, um, and our different regulatory bodies. And I think that this is just a sign of the, the FSB recognizing, Hey, this is the direction and you can't stop innovation. And we're seeing all of the countries that maybe are not the global reserve currency looking at that and saying, Hey, this is a good thing. Thanks. Thanks for some guidelines and let's work on how we're going to do this together. So when we really think about a, a global economy and, and, you know, the, the U S dollar has, has been that kind of, you know, one global currency that, that everything is kind of paired against that, you know, what's, what's the franc compared to the U S dollar? What's the peso compared to the U S dollar? Um, and, and a lot of that is, I think goes back to something Brad said earlier. It's just the way it's always been done. Like they just didn't have a better system. So let's just use the most stable economy. We'll pair to there. You know, Zemfira, as we, as we start getting into, you know, this, this concept of a true global economy, the tech technology is is you know light years ahead of anything that, that they could have conceptualized we're already seeing you know bricks and others you know kind of pulling back from wanting to use the US dollar um, what's your thoughts on you know kind of where this is going to evolve because once the systems are in place as long as you can buy bread with it you know it, it doesn't need to be you know doesn't need to be US dollar doesn't need to be a national currency I mean do we do we see like the rise of, of meme coins to be uh, or any coin of your choosing to kind of be the the true currency or are we always going to be kind of focused in on fiats I'm kind of I think we're far away from going away from fiat okay um, and I think ultimately you just need to have some sort of way to compare one asset to another. And so the idea of a stable coin is an important one because that ultimately defines how volatile the asset is, how it is with relationship to another. And if the question is about whether U.S. is going to be that, um, uh, that, that comparable to the, to the world, I think it's kind of probably is. And I think the indications are as much as we're talking about break and, the, the chi- China coming in or, or Russia going away from the U.S. currency um, or, or to, to sell their oil, um, U.S. is still the, the strongest out there. And we've seen that European Union tried to do that with Euro and it kind of led to nowhere. Uh, so I think it needs to have, we need to have another shock. We need to have another couple of decades before we're able to um, have a conversation as what's next, but the stable coin idea is an important one. Uh, that's absolutely great. Um, so jumping over, uh, Kuwait, as uh, capital markets authority has issued, uh, probations, uh, against, uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, including Bitcoin. So the ban includes payments, investments, mining related to virtual assets. Uh, local regulators are now allowed to issue license, uh, for providing virtual assets, um, in any commercial factor. Uh, and the CMA, uh, also warned about the risk associated with cryptocurrency, stating they lack legal status, issuer support, and the prices are driven by speculation. Um, is this, and we just talked about all the, the, the G20 really pushing in on like trying to define rules to play the game. Um, I'm Jessica, I'll go ahead and, and kick this one back off with you. Um, is this a case of the politicians not doing their homework on where the rest of the world is? <laughs> well, certainly. And, and I, I hate to pick on some of uh, the, the Middle Eastern regions, but in general, this is a region of the world where 
we will sometimes see very large divergence in regulation and strategy from the rest of the world. And I, so in some ways I don't, I don't think it's particularly surprising from Kuwait, but I would definitely juxtaposition this against, against the FSB and the G20, right? And against what we're seeing in Latin America, in um, this EU, Latin America, Caribbean, the, the joint declaration on a digital alliance. I, I think when we look at that <laughs> giant swath of the world and all of the economy, the economies that, that represents juxtaposed against Kuwait saying, hey, no, not here. You know, sadly, we're just going to see a few countries make these isolation, isolationist decisions and eventually they'll have to revise their policy. That's I mean, China, China, China does this like every six months, like they ban it and they, you know, no, no more mining. And then six months later, they're opening, you know, another hydro plant and, you know, next it comes back. So it, it, it just seems like it depends on who's in power and, and who wants to put out the press release and, and what the news cycle is that day. Um, you know, I don't, I don't disagree that most, most cryptocurrencies are just gambling and speculation, um, but but that has nothing to do with the technology behind why they exist. Um, you know, beanie babies are not a form of currency, um, but they really showcase the power of peer to peer you know marketplaces. That that you know eBay was never going to get to BMWs if they couldn't get through you know little five dollar toys. Um, and so I think that you know the, the concepts that we really lose right off the bat is is just. You know, being able to explore and, and, and it's fine to explore through regulation. Um, Zem, I mean, you, you understand that, you know, especially a country when you're talking about a sovereign fund, um, you know, they're not going to move unless they have clear directives of which they can do so. And it seems like this, in this case, it, we just got a press release of them saying no. I would say that it's interesting. I mean, I would just kind of echo what Jessica's saying and maybe add a couple of things to it. a big part of this is cultural. So when you were to look at the countries that kind of go a bit yellow and, um, you know, just restrict, uh, restrict any moves, movements associated with certain technologies or certain, certain, um, certain, um, uh, securities, it's typically because they don't understand it. And by, and culturally, when they don't understand it, it's very typical for them to ban it. So we've seen that in Russia. We've seen that in China. Now we're seeing that in Middle East. Surprisingly, that doesn't happen in the Western world. And part of that beca- is because culturally, it is much more re- per- perceptive to new technologies. And it really, w- it's more democratic by nature. And as a result, it kind of goes and tries to understand it and then regulate it eventually versus ban it altogether. Interesting. Um, one of the things, uh, Jessica, you referenced is the EU, Latin America, and Caribbean uh, joint declaration on a digital alliance. So what that is, is that uh, all, all these countries um, have agreed to establish the EU uh, LAC digital alliance. This uh, informational framework aims to enhance cooperation and dialogue on various digital issuers, uh, including digital policy, uh, internet governance, data governance, infrastructure, con- connectivity, security, artificial intelligence, skills development, uh, digital trade, and more. Uh, the alliance seeks to promote a human-centric, and I think that's a very important thing that they're, they're trying to protect humans, uh, vision of a digital economy, address digital gaps, ensure privacy, data protection, and foster uh, an inclusive and sustainable digital society. Um, Brad, I, I, I think this is great. What do you think? 
I, I think this follows in the footstep of uh, the other declaration from FSB. I, I think it's absolutely necessary and, and great. Obviously, the devil's is, is going to be in the details, how it's applied, how it takes shape. Because, uh, you know, putting out a press release and saying we're planning to do this is wonderful. It doesn't take much time. But then the amount of um, brain work that needs to go into it to... to um, Create these standards and normalize them across borders. That's that's real work. That that's where a lot of the governments that are uh, well-meaning struggle because they have opposition. They have uh, very powerful entities with uh, different agendas, whether it's in EU or United States, and so then they have to deal with that. So I'm I'm just going to be watching how the execution happens and how it takes shape, but. Uh, Overall, really, uh, really positive. So when we we talked to uh, earlier in the show about kind of decentralization versus central authorities, and in this case, we have a bunch of centralized authorities wanting to interconnect each other. Um, what what's the you know if you were if you showed up and you were in charge of this, you know, do you believe that this can become a decentralized uh, agreement or decentralized um, that you know there's one rule of the game and smart contracts run this, or is it going to be a bunch of committees that are constantly voting and shifting um, over this digital power. Uh, well, there's a will, there's a way. I mean, can it become a DAO and govern itself automatically through uh, a programmatic approach? Absolutely. That would be a dream of mine come true. But uh, is there any appetite for that? Would these countries even want to consider that and give up their um, governmental bodies that are looking to govern this. I, I, I don't think that appetite is there and I don't think it's gonna be a reality for at least a couple of decades because we need a change of old guard before people who truly believe in the technology, in the opportunity, are in power to make those decisions. Right now, wherever you look, uh, people in power are not technology natives. They are often um, misinformed at best about the capabilities and, and, and the opportunities the technology represents. So they don't want to use it. I mean, you know, we, we could be testing this in the United States right now, but we're not. And the only reason is because our, the average age of our parliament is over 65. So people are not interested. Yeah, it's it's hard to get innovation when people are in, in that phase of their life that they want to retain what they've built. Um, they're not interested in, in you know kind of innovating or entrepreneurialism as much as they can. Um, it, it, kind of in a similar note, and, and jumping over to this, and, and Jessica, you you understand the Nasdaq very well. The Nasdaq for a minute was like, hey, cryptocurrencies, like great. What, let's 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 manage custody the same way we do. Like so, when somebody trades on the Nasdaq, um, you know, I may have an account to trade on on the Nasdaq and the Dow and the S and P. Doesn't mean I am personally like making trades and with everyone else, I use a broker model and the broker manages the custody. And um, generally the NASDAQ has you know regulation uh, over how that looks and feels. Um, and so for a minute, they raised their hand and said, cool, we're going to explore this and figure out how to how to move um, in, into digital asset trading, which is, is a massive technology increase because right now there's a lot of IOUs that flow back and forth between these massive institutions and settlement 
fulfillment may not happen. Um, definitely doesn't happen daily and generally doesn't happen monthly. And, and when they do these audits to say, well, you know, there's 130% of outstanding shares, you get the GameStop, uh, you know, crew that's, that's trying to, to, to really attack, um, you know, some of, some of the people that are playing the game, but they don't understand the technology behind this. Um, is the NASDAQ, in, in your opinion, kind of, just playing with the wind, like it was popular last year. So they made an announcement this year, it's down. So they're just kind of flowing with the wind back and forth. Or do you think that they have a sound reason to say no to this? I, well, this is a hundred percent conjecture on my part, but I suspect that there was some backroom pressure. I suspect that some of NASDAQ's very large clients and also, they have regulation of their own from different U.S. federal government bodies. And I suspect that some pressure was applied on behalf of the very large broker-dealers and U.S. financial institutions to put a pause on this until they can figure out how to do their part and own it. This was a, in 100% conjecture opinion on my part. I, I suspect there was some backroom protecting of the existing guard. Interesting. Sammy feels the same way. Yeah, I think I, I don't think I have anything to add, Jay. I just I hundred percent agree with Jess, Jessica. We were we were getting close. I got it. I was really excited when I read that announcement a couple months ago, and, and you know, short lived. Um, let's jump over into a little bit of Bitcoin talk. Uh, we've talked a lot about general crypto- cryptocurrencies and we've talked quite a bit about, you know, general blockchain technologies. Um, but they're still a king of this game and that's the one that started it all, which is, which is Bitcoin. And we've got a, a couple articles in the news that I think are very relevant. Um, the first is that the U.S. uh, spot Bitcoin ETF clock, uh, started on Wednesday and they have eight, uh, applications that they put on the federal register. Um, Jessica, just real quick, will you explain what that, what that is? So we've got a number of, and now fairly, fairly large uh, entities that are listing these ETFs, all largely Bitcoin based. And of course, the, the biggest one here is BlackRock. And I, as a, hey, what have I seen behind the scenes? I've actually seen three or four other very large institutions proposing that they're also putting together their Bitcoin-based ETFs. And I would read into that and BlackRock's involvement. And I'm certainly not alone uh, in this prediction that uh, we're likely to see this pass uh, as a result of BlackRock's uh, involvement. And I would say from what I've seen of these other very large institutions that have proposed them, that that the, that belief is that this is already de facto done. You know, Brad, you've been you've been preaching the uh, Bitcoin for for a long time. Um, you know, you you've been around uh, the space and you've kind of seen a lot of uh, other cryptocurrencies kind of come and go. And, and Bitcoin just continues to do its thing, proof of work, nothing, no major changes. Um, you know, how how is your feeling about spot ETFs compared to native you know native custody, which is something like Equibank offers? I think it's it's necessary and it's a great step forward because uh, if you look at a lot of the um, stock markets globally, the most activity happens on spiders, on indexes, on baskets. 
a lot of people don't have the um, market understanding or the bandwidth or the time to educate themselves on individual investable assets and, and build a portfolio for themselves. So if you look at your retirement account, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of ETFs there. And, 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 you know, they have certain guidelines. They have a prospectus. They say, okay, this is how we invest the monies we have. And then you trade those based on your risk tolerance. I think Bitcoin spot ETF, because there's a futures already for, for Bitcoin. It was, uh, long overdue and and to have blackrock put it forward forward where their success rate of creating new products new financial products is almost 100 percent. i think they've done a total of 586 or so uh applications and they've only missed one just one of them did not go through so with their track record it's uh, obviously very positive for the industry very positive for people trying to get bitcoin exposure without learning the technology without opening up uh, wallets i mean i'm on the fence a little on this one because we always say your keys you know your wallet you have to be responsible for those funds when you give the keys to someone else you have situations like celsius and uh voyager and three arrows and all those things that failed but on the flip side how what percentage of the population can create wallets and go find bitcoin and purchase it and and safeguard that bitcoin i mean if you look at uh, how much bitcoin is dormant or unaccessible it's quite considerable and these are all people at one time created a wallet whether bitcoin was a dollar or ten thousand dollars bought some bitcoin or mine and then lost their keys lost access to their wallets and now they don't have access to that so i think to cater to those who are never going to self-custody and never going to be uh, capable and comfortable with that, having the ETF ran by a behemoth like BlackRock that they trust and that's not going anywhere is a huge win for the industry. And it's going to expand the, the, the amount of exposure these assets gets uh, drastically, both institutional and retail as a result of uh, this newfound uh, trust in it. And I and I love that. And and right in the the next article that we had, which is you know the Japanese exchanges have experienced a significant increase in Bitcoin trade volume, rising uh, almost eighty percent in the first half of this year. And and they're attributing this to uh, the yen's uh, depreciation caused by their Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes. Um, and so I, I find that to be just incredibly interesting to to see you know Japan, which is a very you know financially stable country, that is is you know, already early on in the game saying, Hey, our, our, our dollar, our, our, um, yen is being, you know, depreciated. And instead of them going into any other asset, gold or silver, there's a massive increase in, in Bitcoin, which is the, always been the goal. It's supposed to be the, you know, the federal, the, the digital gold. Zem, what's your, uh, what's, what's your feeling on this? Is this, uh, and, and, and again, 80%, we don't know what, what volume they haven't said what volume true volume it is um so it could be you know from a, a tiny fraction to a tiny fraction but i think it's a positive headline oh, absolutely jay I, but i think i think we don't really know how much gold or other assets been bought um so we only see their trading volumes volumes on bitcoin um but ultimately when there is a devaluation of a currency um it's really people really try to um invest in something that is stable 
and then it's, um, it's been gold for for uh, centuries. Now it is Bitcoin, which is the next gold, and um, ultimately it's a very. Po- I feel that it's very positive and actually shows that in certain countries and certain jurisdictions, there's lots of demand that is still being untapped. I completely agree. And I think Bitcoin is still in its, you know, first one or two chapters. Um, we, we saw kind of that it, it exists. It does have use. And now we're trying to figure out how to really make it as, as stable. Um, because, you know, they're, they're saying, Hey, we want to re- decrease the volatility of the yen. I, I don't ever really think of Bitcoin as a stable asset at this point. Um, you know, the goal is that it gets there, but we still have, you know, a lot of cleanup that has to be done from the, the first decade of, of Bitcoin's existence, which is, you know, hundreds of thousands of them, you know, you know, in government, uh, vaults, you know, that were recovered from theft, which we just saw happen. So I, I think that there's a lot to be, to, to occur to get to more of a stable rise where we see Bitcoin like, Hey, it went up 5% this year, 10% this year versus, you know, these swings of, you know, two, three X that they can do in a couple months. Um, shifting over into kind of, uh, the next, the next segment, um, the, the world of, uh, between traditional banking and decentralized banking is continuing to be bored. And, uh, Brad is, one of the reasons we're having you on here today is you guys uh, have some big news with your latest NeoBank offering. Um, and instead of me massacring it, do you want to kind of talk through what you guys have been doing? Because I, I find it to be just one of the most interesting things, uh, especially this week here in the world of Web3. Oh, thank you, Jay. Um, so we started uh, Equify Journey two years ago. And the purpose of it was to create a single login portal that can cater to everyone's all financial needs. I mean, if you think about it, that's a very, very challenging and lofty goal because we're talking about uh, investments, we're talking about banking, we're talking about cards, everything, anything that you may need to run your finances, we want to be the one-stop shop. So this is another step uh, milestone in in the journey towards that we we launched the defi platform with um five products uh at our at our launch then reduced it to three because the two that we thought would see some uh use were not being used as much uh we started adding banking functionalities and banking rails uh when people think about banking they usually think about just their um local Currency and local bank. We are we are a global bank, so we deal with multiple fiat currencies, uh, which requires different correspondence, interactions with different central bank uh, authorities. So, in our journey, we're still working towards getting to a point where we are the bank. And that doesn't close your accounts because you have crypto. We actually encourage it. We uh, assist you with our OTC desk in buying those cryptocurrencies and, and selling them when, when you need. So we're looking at a comprehensive, holistic uh, solution for everyone. And it's exciting because we're doing it fully licensed and regulated. So whenever there is a gray area, we go to our regulators, we go to regulators globally, we propose solutions so that, you know, all the KYC AML is done uh, with the utmost uh, care. And then we get to a point where the products and services we're proposing are, are um, accepted and, and we're allowed to... Uh, offer them to to our users so in in that 
in that journey, now we're at the point of merging the banking services and simplifying the transition between crypto and a bank account, crypto and a card, uh, either credit or debit, and, and vice versa, so that the uh, interactions become simpler and simpler. Because um, a lot of these things are being explored uh, by other projects individually. If you look at you know the card solutions that are out there, there are cards that allow you to spend crypto, either from exchanges or other platforms. There are banks that will allow you to custody or you know, hardware wallet in their vaults and things like that. But they're not native. They're not simple to use. You have to ask for it. You have to learn how the blockchain works and be able to transfer crypto. And our goal has always been to be accessible. We want to bring everything people need to them in a very simple, easy to use user interface. And, and so again, another milestone towards that. And I'm very excited what this year is gonna hold. If we don't have another 2022 kind of year with system shocks and market collapses and, and just bad news, uh, you know, nonstop, uh, I think by the end of the year, we're gonna uh, launch the new portal. That's gonna be seamless uh, movement between uh, digital assets and, and traditional assets. And once people see how easy it is, they're going to understand how important it was to bring the two together instead of uh, leaving the innovative stuff out. And, and I love that. And, and I love the fact that you're, you know, focused on regulation first and then the technology, which is the easy part, um, really, um, you know, secondary. So just as a quick question, and, you know, again, I haven't used your system. So, um, to me, the concept that people state, you know, Hey, you'll be able to use whatever cryptocurrency you want, uh, to purchase is, is insanity. Like no one's going to walk into a restaurant and there's a menu board of, you know, 500 different cryptocurrencies uh, that when you swipe your card, it's like, oh, this person paid in Doge, this person paid in Bitcoin, this person paid in, you know, Litecoin or whatever the case is. And it, like, that's not going to happen. So it has to convert to whatever natively that that merchant wants, which is the most important thing, which is the ability, the ability to buy bread. Um, we've, we've talked about this so many times. So right now, Coinbase, you know, is they, they, they can custody your coins for you. Uh, they can allow you to buy some NFTs, but you get the same problem. You know, if, if it digital in, digital out, um, you know, those merchants don't want your NFTs and they don't want your crypto. So you're saying, it's, you know, I, I can have a Visa card, swipe it, and then I deal with the settlement, the settlement the same way I would when I pay my, my credit card bill. No, we deal with it. So it's oh, like yeah. a language uh, localization. Think of it as localization. You decide whether you want to use your British pounds, Bitcoin, Ethereum, US dollars, or Canadian dollars. And then the merchant gets it in their local currency. So if, if you're in Thailand, they don't see Bitcoin or they don't have to have a menu for 500 uh, different uh, currencies, like you said. It's localized to them. So you swipe your card, you pay for the bread, you pay for your food, you pay for your hotel. And then the local merchant gets the local currency, whatever they get paid in. You choose to spend what you spend. And we are in the middle with our simple but elegant technology making it happen. So, so it's, it's, it's a seamless, the, the reason why a lot of adoption for Bitcoin doesn't happen right now, although there are several evangelists that can show you, you can buy a house, you can buy a car, you can buy anything with your Bitcoin right now, 
is because it's not seamless. You have to think about it. You have to plan for it. You have to go find a mortgage broker who's going to accept your Bitcoin as a collateral and give you the loan to buy your home or property in the country that accepts their fiat currency, of course, as legal tender. Because there are so many steps, a lot of people either don't understand or don't have the patience to figure it out. So you don't get adoption. Our goal is to eliminate all the friction from the process. So if you want to buy a house with Ethereum, we want to make sure that whatever country you're in, we can give you the loan in the local currency. So you go buy your house and your Ethereum is collateralized and you have your loan payments. And this is something we already um, beta tested. We issued the first um, metaverse and real world debit cards uh, two years ago where you have the same card virtually and physically and you can use it however you want. On the back end, you choose, I want to spend my Bitcoin, I want to spend my US dollars. And then in the front end, it could be you're spending it in um, a metaverse and you use their coin to pay. So it converts from fiat to the to crypto or vice versa like i said if you're in us and you're trying to buy a soda they don't have to figure out what uh, how much dogecoin is it's just it's 75 cents 65 cents and then you spend your crypto so you're saying no one wants to accept my reddit moons um reddit moons are doing quite well actually they're doing so great. i'm sure they they would be people who would take your reddit moons <laughs> but since they can't buy food with it they're still gonna lean towards us dollars probably awesome awesome thank you thank you thank you for that and, and congratulations I, that's a herculean lift uh you know on the technology and the regulation to get that done um so excited to kind of follow along with that story uh, it's a lot of education, Jay. We, oh. I mean, I, I spend probably 60% of my time educating our partners, our regulators, everyone we interact with, because the questions like the one you, you posed where, so are they going to have a menu with 500 currencies comes more often than uh, you would, you would believe. Oh, I, I can imagine. That's that's exactly what we're trying to do here is is educate everyone on you know what's right, wrong, and you know what's just kind of some fud in the news. Um, so as we kind of wrap up here towards the close, there's a couple items I just want to uh, kick over to, and and that has to do with a little bit of uh, you said it earlier, metaverse, a little bit of AI, and some some other things that are occurring. Uh, the EU does what the EU does best. They're going to lead uh, not based on technology, but they're going to lead on regulation. Uh, so the latest EU proposal estimates that the global market size for metaverse developments will exceed uh, 800 billion euros by the end of this decade, uh, compared to an end-of-the-year value of 27 billion for last year. It's a very large increase. Um, and then McKinsey, uh, Zem, you're one of your former stables, uh, said on the state of the metaverse, an estimated value of $5 trillion by the end of this decade. So we're currently seeing, and I think metaverse is a, a term using massively incorrectly most times. Um, I think that we're just talking about Web3 uh, and, and immersive technologies as well. Um, Jessica, what, what's your your thoughts on kind of, the, you know, what they're trying to say here? Jay, I think, I think you said it in one sentence, they're going to lead on regulation <laughs> rather than technology here. And it's, a, it's overall a positive movement. Uh, it is, this is the time, especially with, I would say, AI, little, little late on some of these other technologies, but uh, it's certainly the time with AI to establish some, some ground rules in terms of regulation. 
And overall, I think that's uh, positive and beneficial, assuming that they, the committee and the, the groups, whomever they put together to do this, actually tap people who are informed and can 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 describe how these technologies actually work because there's a lot of fear right now. There's a lot of fear in what AI can and can't do. And it all fundamentally boils down to a, a lay person's uh, not necessarily understanding the underlying technology and how it works. Zem, what's your feelings on, uh, on this? You know, it's, it's clear that, that AI is coming. Um, and it, you know, it, it's it's part of our everyday lives, but but AI is not like this new thing that just occurred. Like it, it's been around for decades at this point. You know, Steve Jobs talked about you know AI being part of you know the first Macintosh. You know, back in the eighties. Are you talking to someone who just spent eleven hours in the AI workshop where we spend about six hours doing deep fakes? Um, so I I can say that yes, it was indeed um, exi- it indeed existed for decades, but the true um, revolution happened in the last three to four months. And so the reality is of what will become possible six months from now, we don't really know what that's going to look like. And if I were to couple that development with their immersive experiences of what metaverse is all about, I, I hundred percent agree with McKinsey. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be gigantic, um, market for anything related to immersive environment that is connected to artificial intelligence. And obviously Web3 is going to be part of it, but I think here it's really more about AI. Um, and if I were to look at the, the article, actually, I think EU is being very smart. They are at the forefront of Web3 uh, regulations. They are at the forefront of AI regulations, and now they just want to make sure that whatever comes out of it is also going to bring the best to uh, the, the regular customers. So by eliminating any domination by the big five and ultimately the big tech coming in and just taking on the entire market share um, of what yet to come. Yeah. Brad, any, any uh, thoughts on, you know, immersive technologies and, and AI from your world? I know you've, <laughs> you just said how busy you are, but this stuff is, is flowing into everything. Um, a- AI is, is going to disintermediate, um, as much, if not more than blockchain did, because there are a lot of very repetitive and middleman jobs that, um, don't require a lot of, uh, human brain power. They require methodical appro- approach to problem solving, like customer service, uh, you know, uh, sales, things like that. So I, I think, um, I think if you put blockchain and AI together, you have a much more immersive metaverse that brings the whole thing, uh, together because when we're, taken out of our reality, we want to be in an equally real environment, whether it's virtual, augmented, or, or what have you. And, and so far, the, um, the intelligence of the NPCs, non-human uh, elements in those environments, ha- has not been on par with our real Real life experiences, um, so I think it's a uh, it's it's a very exciting time to be be alive because you're going to see the convergence of all these technologies that 
have been around different amounts of time. I mean, my second exit was my AI machine learning company, uh, early 2000s. So I'm very uh, familiar and, and have been a big fan since uh, iRobot days. So uh, I always thought it would be incredible to be able to uh, augment our society with artificial intelligence, not fight with them. I mean, the Terminator future is, of course, uh, an, an entertaining one, but uh, we don't need to go that dark or bleak. But there's so much we can do to make our lives better uh, collectively, not just you and I, but humanity as a whole using AI and using using blockchain that uh, I think we're going to see that inflection now in the next five years where AI, the new gen AI, as Sam said, is going to start kicking in and becoming much more prevalent. And then uh, with that, uh, I, I expect a metaverse experience that's going to be seamless from our, our real lives uh, relatively soon in the next decade where you don't know if it's virtual or, or if you're really, um, you know, experiencing it. And that's exciting for me. Now, there could be a very bleak future if that technology and tools are used in, in ways that harm people. But uh, I'm, I'm faithful in humanity that we're not going to make that mistake. And uh, T-1000 is not going to appear in a, in a few years trying to exterminate us. Yeah, well, I think in the movie we already have, we've already gone past that year, so we're safe now. Um, the last article I want to want to throw out is I think that that kind of push against AI, um, and we're going back to regulators uh, and and politicians not understanding the technology and, and not having that education. Um, so Senator Casey uh, has introduced two new bills in the United States protecting workers from artificial intelligence in the work workplace. No Ro- robot bosses acts prohibits employers from making employment decisions solely based on automated systems and requires human oversight. Um, this is a a challenge for me. You know, of course I want to protect workers' rights. I think that humans are the reason why all these things exist. Um, And I think what they're talking about is a fully automated system similar to what Amazon uses today that just grades employees and then just, you know, fires or promotes them based on on internal metrics. And this is already happening today. And so there's a little bit of protection on this. I think it's a slippery slope um, because there's a lot of tools that we need and use that that can uh, really far enhance uh, your, your fiduciary responsibilities if you're a CEO uh, to return value to your shareholders, to to have a better work environment for your employees, and to sort these things out. And and I I always feel like you know reg- regulating the stuff so early. I mean, it's so new. Um, ChatGTP is you know kind of showcased that as I'm said just a few months ago, um, and to already be clamping down on some of these things before they happen. I, I just feel it, it's going to stifle a little bit of innovation. Um, Zem, I'll, I'll kind of come back to you on this one because you just spent all day at a workshop. <laughs> well, I think I think there's definitely a lot of things, a lot of great things that will come out of AI and that's always a lot of um, uh, not so great things that's going to come out of AI. And, and being proactive at addressing some of these concerns early on is pretty important. So I, I'll just say that this is actually great news. Um, and honestly, this is probably one of the first of many, many to come that, uh, from the regulatory aspect of what can, uh, and cannot be done using AI, uh, in a day-to-day world. That's amazing. Um, uh, let's go around the horn one last, one last time. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of bring this thing to a close. Uh, Brad, any kind of thoughts on, on overall the, the status of, of Web3 and everything else today? You feel positive about the direction everything's going? 
Very positive. Even when um, about 95% of all investment into Web3 uh, pulled back in the last year, there is so much innovation going on that I, I feel very comfortable saying it's, it's here to stay and, and change our lives in a, in a much better direction. Um, obviously, if the environment was a little more positive from an investment perspective, that would speed things up. But uh, a lot of attention has switched to AI, which is, again, great because I believe they go hand in hand. One pushes the other to be more um, effective, better integrated and vice versa. So I, I think there's going to be some very impactful businesses that are going to be either uh, launched or created in the next five to 10 years and exciting time to be alive. I love that. And I, I agree with you. I've always said that that blockchain is designed for for computers. Um, humans are just kind of, we're, we're stuck in the middle of it right now. So I love that. Jessica, any, any thoughts? Uh, are we moving on an uptrend uh, as far as innovation and everything else right now? I agree. I think we are. And what I'm particularly excited by are the emergence of some, some very clear and positive and innovative infrastructure plays. The, the framework upon which the, the industry is going to run, enabling this big transition from the tech of today to the tech of tomorrow. So I'm excited about it. Love it. Zem, bring us home. What's your thoughts? I'm, I'm, I'm more excited than ever. I think we are at the most interesting uh, time in probably our lifetimes when you see the emergence of AI and what Web3 is kind of went through the hype and now really uh, the build is happening while regulatory um, regulation is uh, getting caught up with it. And so what is coming next is probably some of the most interesting decade that's uh, from the innovation perspective that we're going to see. Love it. Love it. Why Wales, uh, that was our session this time. Thank you so much, uh, Brad, Jessica, and Zemfira. This was absolutely fabulous. A lot of great insights, a lot of great alpha, uh, and most importantly, hopefully a lot of education because the space is constantly shifting. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to have a whole new batch of stories. We're excited to have you guys back then. Talk soon. Why Wales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.